Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Reading 16 verses of Scripture, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. I'm going to talk to us for a few minutes this morning on the idea that really I think what is the big picture of what this chapter says, and that is that your illness does not lead to death, but rather it is for the glory of God. And you can insert illness and insert whatever trial or suffering that you have. It may be physical, it may be an actual illness, but it could be something else, a struggle. But whatever it is, it's not going to lead to your death. And Lazarus did die. Jesus said, it's not, going to, it's not going to lead to his death, and Jesus knew he was going to die. But what Jesus was trying to get across was, everything that is happening right now, it's happening for my glory. He said, it's happening for the glory of my Father and for the glory of the Son of God. That is what Jesus was trying to get them to see, and that is what I want to talk to us about this morning. Father, thank you this morning for your word. We know that you are the eternal word and that through the power of your spirit that you are here among us. You told us in your word that where two or three are gathered together that you would be in the midst of them. And Jesus, we know that while you're not here in body, you are here in spirit through the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So touch us, give us one more moment of your glory, open up our hearts to understand and receive your word and let it transform our lives as we leave this place and we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Just before this chapter begins in chapter 10, the crowds in Jerusalem had picked up stones to kill Jesus. This is how chapter 10 ends. And in verse 38 in chapter 10, they tried to arrest him and he escapes. He escapes to the place where John the Baptist first started baptizing people. This is on a map. It would be northeast of Jerusalem is where he escapes to. 
There is a town a couple miles east of Jerusalem called Bethany. Bethany is still there today. That town has never ceased to exist since the time that we read this. It had already been there about 500 years. Uh, today it has a Palestinian name because it is in the West Bank. Uh, it's a Palestinian city. And because it's so confusing over there, it's a Palestinian city, mostly under Israeli military rule. Uh, but it's part of that land in that area in the West Bank that they've just been battling over for decades. And this is where this story happens. And I say all that because I want you to see this is a real story. This is something that really happened. We could go today, and people do. Bethany is a big tourist town uh, because this is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived and where Jesus often visited. It was basically like a suburb of Jerusalem. So the people, there were friends, messengers who tracked down Jesus and they sent him word where he was that their brother Lazarus, Mary and Martha, sent a message to Jesus and said, uh, you know, hey, tell Jesus that our brother Lazarus is very sick. Now they didn't have a hospital to take him to. They probably didn't have a doctor to call on. The first hospitals ever in existence were coming to be about this time in the Roman Empire, but certainly were not popping up in places like Bethany. And if you think that medical care has come a long way in the last 50 years, and it has, think about what medical care was like 2,000 years ago. It was fairly primitive. There was a high mortality rate for younger people, sicknesses that today people recover from, uh, because of medical intervention, people then often died. We don't know what was wrong with Lazarus. We just know that he was very sick. We don't know how old he was, but whatever he had, and he probably wasn't that old, but whatever he had, it was something that was going to kill him. And the sister's first response was to call Jesus. And I look at that and I think, how often when we, even in physical ailments, our first response, how often is our res first response to call Jesus because we have standalone ERs popping up on every corner. They're just building a new one up the road across from my house and it's a big business and uh, we have emergency rooms and state-of-the-art medical care, some of the finest in the world that's right here among us. But let us as the people of God, we don't shun those things of course, but the first thing that we ought to do is call upon the name of the Lord and ask Him for help. But that is the setting for the words that Jesus give us today about death and life and illness and God's glory. Jesus is reframing how we should think about death and suffering and what it means according to His glory. So the first two verses, I'll read them again. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His, wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now that's a whole different story. We're talking about a woman wiping the feet of Jesus and anointing them out of worship. That actually comes in chapter 12. That's coming up. It hasn't happened yet. But when John writes the story, he's writing the story years later, he's wanting us to know when this story happens. He's referencing a story that's getting ready to happen, saying this is the same people that happens. And this is something we'll be going to in the future in John chapter 12. Now the point that John is making and probably the reason why he's referencing a story that is yet to happen is because he wants us to know that there is a very special relationship between Jesus and Mary. There's a love between them. Now we're kind of jaded, shaded with <clears throat> in our culture. We think about that and say, well, what was this love like between 
Jesus and Mary. It was not a sensual love. There's no reason for us to think that. It was a love that caused her to honor and worship him, to anoint his feet and wash with a very, very expensive ointment, which she anointed his feet and then wash his feet with her hair. It was a point of worship. And someone delivers a message to Jesus that people he is close to has a serious problem. And John wants us to see that these are his closest friends. Your friends are in trouble. This isn't just some random family that you met once. These are the people who you are very close to. And Jesus' first response is not, pack up boys, we got to hit the road. My friend is in trouble. His first response is, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The first thing that he does upon hearing that this hearing this news is he makes it about himself. It's the first thing he does. Actually, this is about me. Now, if you're around Christianity very long, you're going to hear the idea that Jesus loves you. For God so loved the world. Sunday school song, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. I mean, it's, it's the elementary thing that we know about Christianity. It was not until I had been in the ministry several years that I had considered the idea that God's first commitment was actually to himself and that God loves his own glory. It was about 12 years ago. It was John Piper who introduced me to this concept in his writings and always supporting it with scripture. And the doctrine stunned me on two counts. First, I was stunned by the fact that what God does, he does for his own glory. And the Bible is saturated with this language. I mean, God does make it all about himself. Uh, there, there are people on record like Oprah Winfrey and, and Brad Pitt who have publicly said this is one of the problems that they have with Christianity is that God is self-serving and self-exalting. C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous Christian writers the last 200 years said it, in his early days as, a, as an agnostic, this is what he struggled with about Christianity is that God was always telling people to worship him. And then he talks about how he just completely reversed his position and saw how why that is such a wonderful thing. And the second count that stunned me is how I never saw this, how I'd read every word of the Bible cover to cover, and yet I somehow missed this. I later found that Piper's experience was similar to mine, and he writes, quote, I grew up in a home where 1 Corinthians 10.31 was almost as basic to our family as John 3.16. Whether then you eat or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But it was not until I was 22 years old that I ever hear anyone say that God's first commitment is to his own glory and that this is the basis for ours. I had never heard anyone say that God does everything for his glory too and that is why we should as well. I had never heard anyone explain that the role of the Holy Spirit is to burn in me what he has been burning with for all eternity, namely God's love for God. Or more precisely, God the Father's delight in the panorama of his own perfections reflected as a perfect image in his Son. No one had ever asked me, who is the most God-centered person in the universe? And then answered, God is. Or, is God an idolater? And then answered, no, he has no other gods before him. Or, what is the chief end of God? And then answered, God's chief end is to glorify God himself and to enjoy him forever. So I was never confronted forcefully with the God-centeredness of God until I sat under the teachings of Daniel Fuller, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary in California, and was directed by him to the writings of Jonathan Edwards. Now, 
I could give you a lot of verses on this in the Bible. That is not the center. Well, it sort of is the center of today's sermon, but I want to frame this around the story of, of Lazarus. But I want us to see and know that the Bible teaches that God is self-exalting and that what we do is we join God. God invites us in participation to say, help me exalt me. Exalt your, help. God is inviting us saying, help me exalt myself. It's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are a constant call by God to exalt who? To exalt God. Yet God loves us. He does love us, but God's love for us is not the motivating factor that determines his actions. He acts out of allegiance to himself. Even our justification, our right standing with God is for his glory. It's in the 23rd Psalm. And I'd never realized this fact until I memorized. I committed Psalm 23 to, to memory. I knew most of it, but I wanted to say, hey, I, I want to be able to quote Psalm 23 verbatim. And then it dawned on me when I did, why does God leave, lead us in paths of righteousness? And the psalmist answered, for his namesake. Look that up in the Bible, for his namesake. What he does is for his namesake so that he is glory. And if he were not infinitely holy and righteous and just, the love of his own glory would be a terrifying prospect. The psychology of the most maniacal of leaders in history points towards narcissism and self-centeredness. God's self-glorification is justified only because of His infinite holiness, only because He is pure, only because He is light. When I exalt myself, I am magnifying who I am, and that is namely a broken, fallen human being. If I am self-exalting, I am taking what is already corrupt and magnifying the corruptness. When God exalts Himself, He is affirming what we already know about Him, and that is that He is infinitely worthy. And this is what Jesus is saying. Even the illness that this man is going through is for my glory and the glory of the Son of God. It's not about death. He's going to die, but that's not what it is about. It is so that God may be glorified. Now, if you were here two or three weeks ago for a sermon on John 9 where Jesus heals the blind man, this would sound familiar because Jesus told his disciples this man was born blind not because he sinned, not because his parents sinned. He was born blind so that the works of God might be manifest. In John 11, it's not a blind man. It's a sick man who is going to die. And Jesus says the same thing. This is happening so that I may be glorified. Now, Jesus could have healed Lazarus from where he was standing. No problem. Psalm 107, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Jesus fulfills this verse at least three times that we know of. The Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 has a daughter that is demon-possessed. And the woman comes to Jesus and Jesus says, go home, everything's going to be fine. The woman goes home, finds the daughter in bed and in her right mind. Jesus healed her from afar. In Luke 7, the centurion's servant, he speaks a word of healing to the house and the servant is healed. He doesn't go visit the servant. In John 4 in Capernaum, there's an official of the town. He goes and finds Jesus. He says, my son is sick. And Jesus says, go home, your son will live. The man travels home, evidently at a distance. His servants come out to meet him on the journey and they say, your son, he's, he's well. And the man says, what, when did his fever break? And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour. And the man thinks to himself, yesterday at the seventh hour was when Jesus said, go home, your son will be well. He healed him from afar. 
He didn't have to go there. He just sent his word. He did it from a distance. The point is that the moment that Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he could have told the messenger, go home, he'll be fine. He had that power. The problem is, is that Jesus doesn't always work like he thinks we should work. This is a prime example of Jesus not doing what we want Jesus to do when we know that Jesus can do it. It's like, Lord, we're not questioning your ability here. I mean, someone actually came to Jesus one time and said, Lord, I know you can heal me if you will. I'm not questioning your ability. I'm questioning your willingness. I don't think most of us ever question God's ability to do anything. God is God. He can do anything he wants to at any time. We're not questioning that. We're just saying, Lord, will you please, are you willing to intervene in this situation? And when God does not intervene, we question God. Well, why God? It doesn't make sense. It's because God sees from a far different level than we do. He's operating on a, God's playing chess while we're playing checkers. God's playing three-dimensional chess while we're playing tiddlywinks. I mean, that's, that's more like it. He's, we're not even playing by in the same game. I've used the example before of being in California in the world's largest maze, human maze, and massive complex, four towers in the corner, and you had a car and you had to make it to each tower and get it punched. And if you could do it in under an hour, um, you got some prize or whatever. And I would wander through the maze just, you know, just like a, a rat in a maze, just wandering. And... Uh, so I was actually at one of these somewhere else one time. The one in California had wooden walls. I was at one one time that had a tarp. And there was a guy in the middle that actually freaked out and crawled on his belly in the dirt underneath the tarp and got all the way out. That was not possible in this one. I'm wandering around, but there were people up there. I had family up there, and there was a, a, like a second-story patio where they could eat and drink, and they could look down. And the people up there could say, well, all you got to do is turn left there and right there. Well, that's because they have a whole different view. I'm, I'm the rat in the maze. I'm seeing one dimensional. They're in a whole different plane. It's exactly how it is with God. He's looking at this all differently than we are. He's seeing things that we don't see. God does not always work like we think he should work. And so we ask questions like, why doesn't God do that? God is working everything out to his glory. It won't make sense to us. We often won't understand it, but we place our trust and our love in an all-knowing, all-sovereign God. We step back and say, God, I don't understand it, but to God be the glory. I honor you and I worship you in the midst of this. Jesus chose to let Lazarus die. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We don't see this kind of relationship between people and Jesus very often. I don't know of any other place that we see the Bible tell about this relationship. We could argue that these were his best friends. He's saying, I I love you people and I'm going to let him die. That's his response. And that's not how we operate. I I received a phone call one time, one evening, that a man was suicidal. Probably on a Sunday evening as I was getting ready for church. I did not go to church first. So, well, I'll be there after church. No, I immediately, I remember I was getting ready. I think I finished brushing my teeth and getting ready and I flew out the door and uh, dropped everything I was doing, drove 10 minutes and found a man sitting at a kitchen table suicidal and we talked and we prayed and uh, to the glory of the work of the Holy Spirit, he, he was okay. If I received a call today asking me to go to the hospital and visit someone, 
because they're dying. He's not going to make it much longer. I would not say to them, sure, I'll do it. I think I've got some time Friday afternoon about two. How's that work for you? Uh, it's, they probably would never call me again for anything. But Jesus did. That's the thing. Is This is exactly what Jesus did. The way that Jesus shows us love is very often different than how we show love because Jesus understands love differently than how we understand it. Now, I'm not advocating that we start reacting to everything the way that Jesus would. I'm not Jesus, uh, but this is how God, I'm not trying to show you how we should always operate. I'm showing you how God often operates in our lives. We won't understand love and how God works unless His Spirit changes our heart. And that's what I hope and pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit will happen today, that we'll see God differently. Verse 5 and 6, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was dead, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, what I'm asking you to do is to pretend like those verse designations aren't there, verse 5 and 6, because they're not. That's, we added those a few hundred years ago so people could find places in their Bible. But when John's writing this, he's, not, he's writing verses 5 and 6 as one continuous thought. And then take the word so out and put the word therefore there in its place because it's the same idea. I, I'm always telling you that when you see the word therefore, you ask why is it therefore? And it's because it's referring to something before that. So read it this way and see how this looks. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Therefore, because he loved them, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. That's how it reads. Jesus hears he's, they're sick, and so he loves them. And because he loves them, therefore, I'll wait a couple days before I go visit him. And on the surface, it makes no sense. Why, Jesus, would you do that? It was a delay that would lead to death, and it was a death that was divinely appointed by God. And yet Jesus knows he's going to lay, raise Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus still had to experience death. There was still a funeral. Jesus' friends still wept bitterly because he died. They still experienced pain and emotional suffering that Jesus could have prevented, and he chose not to, because there's a bigger purpose than my feelings, and that's that God gets the glory. So three observations. Number one, your illness is for the glory of God, and you can insert whatever circumstance it is upon you that you did not choose. Now, please don't go say, well, I really did this intentional, I made this bad decision and choice, and I blew everything up, and but to God be the glory, that's not what we're, we're talking about things and situations in our lives that we're not, um, that we didn't ask for. Uh, it may be illness or some other type of suffering. But I will say, because we all do things in life that are mistakes, and we all make bad choices, God in the midst of those can still work through those and turn things around for His own glory. Um, he does it in all of our lives. That's the meaning of grace and mercy. 2 Corinthians 12, God gives Paul revelations like almost no one we've ever, like Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven and seeing things. He said, I saw things that were not lawful for me to utter. I can't tell you about what I saw in the spiritual. And so then he writes, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. And three times I pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And this is what God said to Paul after Paul prayed, get this thorn out of my flesh. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That was the testimony of Paul. When I am weak, then I am strong. All these things that I'm dealing with, God's strength is going to come in and make up the difference. That doesn't mean that we're not going to do what Mary and Martha did. We are. When we're sick, when people we love are sick, when we're hurting, we're going to go to Jesus and ask Him to help us. And if He does, and sometimes He does, then we will give God glory for it. And if He doesn't, and sometimes He doesn't, then we will pray that God's glory and the glory of the Son of God would be revealed in that illness and hardship and persecution and calamity. One pastor wrote, So what is love? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most, and what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? It is a revelation to your soul of the glory of God, seeing, admiring, and marveling at and savoring God's glory in Jesus Christ. You are most loved by God when His glory is most displayed in your life. That's when you're most loved by God. Not when you have the most money in the bank. Not when everything's going right. It's when God's glory is being displayed in your life. That's when God is loving you. And sometimes that happens through strength, and sometimes it's His perfection being made in your weakness. Second observation, Jesus is the resurrection, and all those who believe in Him shall never die, even if you die. So Martha, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will. He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. Now, if you were to say, Well, Lazarus's death wasn't so bad because Jesus was going to raise him again, well, wouldn't that be true of everyone who is in Christ? And I understand the difference is time. I understand if we have a loved one that died and we knew in four days they were going to come back again, I mean, it'd be like they took a short vacation. Uh, so I get that it didn't have the permanence. But Mary and Martha don't know this. They, they don't have the advantage of reading the story. They're living in the story in real time. So Jesus is going to raise from the dead. <clears throat> uh, we've talked a lot about this through the series of John, but that's the great thing about preaching through a book of the Bible, is we simply talk about what the book keeps talking about. And the chapter, and every chapter in John, just about every chapter, keeps talking over and over and over. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus gives eternal life. John's just hammering it home. I mean, it's just over and over and over. Jesus will resurrect dead people who are in Christ. The relationship that Mary and Martha and Lazarus had with Jesus was more than just great friendship. They did recognize Him as the Son of God. So that's the question I ask you this morning is, what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? It's common in our society 
in our world to, for people to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, and is divine. He is God Himself. God in flesh dwelling among us. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us. But don't take that lightly just because it's so common. There are a lot of people in the world that don't have that revelation and understanding. If you simply, even if you don't have any other framework for faith or belief, if you do have that knowledge and understanding that God has allowed you to believe that, that, he, that Jesus is the Son of God, because no man comes to the Father but except through Jesus. You will come through Jesus Christ. If you believe that this morning, you are blessed <clears throat> beyond measure for people around the world, for people around you that simply don't believe that Jesus is God. That is no light thing to say, I believe in Jesus. I, I say Jesus is Lord. <clears throat> this was the, the reason why those people 2,000 years ago in a, in a culture that required you to say that Caesar is Lord, just to say that Jesus is Lord, to declare Him as Lord, that was a big thing because you can't have two. There's not two Lords. Either Caesar is or Jesus is. And people died because they said Jesus is Lord. And we can flippantly, if we're not careful, flippantly say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe He's Lord. That is no small thing. That is a massive thing to say that a man, a, a, not like a man, not like a human, a person who walked among this earth, born of a woman, uh, with God as His Father, both God and man, walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, died of capital punishment, and we worship Him. Even if you don't have anything else in line with your faith after that, if you believe that, thank God for that. It's a massive revelation and understanding to say that. <clears throat> if you confess with your tongue that He is Lord, and that He is your heart and your life, what follows that confession? If I believe that, then what? That I become a Christ follower. Then I, I want to be filled with His Spirit. I want to be in right standing with God through Christ. And then I want to start being a disciple. We were talking about discipleship a little bit just before we started this morning and, and thinking about what it means to be a disciple and a Christ follower. Um, <clears throat> there are people, I've made reference to this before, um, but... There in Saxe, there is a, I don't remember what road it is, but there's a place where they sell Buddha statues. And there's like a, literally like a hundred of them in the front yard. I, they all look alike, so I can't tell how often they sell them. I don't know if they sell five a week, because if they did, I wouldn't know it. But they're always full. Like I never see empty, empty lines, but it's been there for years. And uh, there are people who are disciples of Buddha. And Buddhism is a, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but the limited amount I've read it, it's not like they worship him as a divine God. It's, he's revered, but he's, wasn't, he's more of like, hey, he has a lot of good ideas and I'm a follower. So I'm a disciple of Buddha because I follow his teachings. And if you've ever talked to someone or known someone who is Buddhist, they will pretty quick engage you with the teachings of Buddha. I, I live this way because of this. Well, we're disciples of Jesus in that we do and follow the teachings of Jesus, but we don't just follow the teachings. We actually worship Jesus as God. He is Lord of our lives. And then it's not just somebody that died 2,000 years ago and was raised again. The, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. 
There's no separation. The Holy Spirit is that same Spirit of Christ. It is the Spirit of Jesus Christ that dwells inside of us. So the Holy Spirit is present to mediate and to empower and to help us live out the faith in Jesus. It's not, a, it's not just a historic faith. It's a right now faith. The person of God himself dwells inside of us if we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what makes it real and relevant for today. It's not just something that's detached from an ancient writing called the Bible. It is alive and present. My, my, favorite, my favorite definition of a church written by Matthew Bates where he says a church exists anywhere that there are at least two or three people that gather together in his name and the Holy Spirit is present to mediate that reality. That's the definition of a church. People gather together, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, yes, I bless and anoint this, you're a church because you've come together to worship me. The third observation, it was belief in God that allowed them to see the glory of God. Sister Peggy, if you'd come back to the music, please. Here's where the miracle happens. Verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I will tell you, as a kid, I read this in the King James Bible, and I fell over laughing is that the King James says, but Lord, he stinketh. And like to a 10-year-old, the word stinketh is just funny. I don't know. It was just funny. Uh, Lord, he stinketh. So the ESV that we're reading from kind of smooths that out and, and says, she says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. But that's what she's saying. Lord, you roll that stone away. He's been dead four days. It's going to stink. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on this account for the people standing around me that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Someone did a study one time and said that it's probably estimated there were about 10,000 people alive at that time or that had died uh, by that time that had been named Lazarus and that the word of the Lord is so specific that the word of the Lord knows the intent of the Lord and goes and finds that one dead man that he wants to raise and Lazarus who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them unbind him and let him go. Jesus first resurrects us. He, he first he calls us to life. We respond by faith in Christ. He imputes his righteousness. We are alive. I, I preached a sermon on Lazarus a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, and one of my best friends, he was my best friend, uh, he was my best man in my wedding. And I had it set up. We had doors in the church. There were double doors off the platform right here. And he was waiting outside the door. And I said, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes busting through those doors all wrapped up. And he's like hopping in. And uh, I kind of gave up on word picture or imagery like that a few years ago. But it, it worked at the time. And... My point on that sermon that I was trying to make was actually what Jesus said next. 
Jesus said, now loose him and let him go. After the resurrection, there still needs to come an unbinding and a loosing. That the resurrection happens, that's justification. And now there's sanctification, there's becoming like Jesus. And the people walked up to Lazarus and as they did in the, in the sermon 20 years ago and they started unwinding it. You needed somebody else's help. Jesus is going to bring you to life, but now somebody else needs to step in and say, okay, you're still wearing grave clothes. We've got to, we've got to unwrap these. We've got to clean you up. We've got to put some clothes on you, as they really would have that day. Um, Lazarus, Lazarus had to go home and, and change clothes. What I'm trying to compel you this morning is to have faith in God. And I can't bring you to faith. I don't have the power to save anybody in this room. And I don't know your spiritual condition. I just, I, I really don't know anybody's true spiritual condition. That's something between you and God. I can't bring you to faith. But the drawing power of the Holy Spirit can. And I believe, I know that the Holy Spirit is at work in here this morning, mediating that reality, drawing all of us, myself included, He's drawing all of us close to Him. He's crying out our names, saying, come forth, live again. And then we're going to help each other. We're going to clean each other up. We're going to take the grave clothes off of each other. And we're going to help each other make it to the end. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word this morning has went forth. But more than just your word and my words, the Spirit has went forth. And it's talked to the hearts and minds of people here this morning. And we've planted a seed, and now we trust that that seed will, will be watered through faith and prayer, and that you'll touch and minister in every heart and life here this morning, Lord, that you would transform us into your image, making us more like you from one degree of glory to another. Lord, that we every day would more perfectly reflect your image as we seek your face and your will for our lives. And we ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As Sister Peggy leads us in song and closing.